Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. Yes, I am back after a much needed few days rest, which I will discuss with you later. Now is not the time because there's so much happening this morning. Welcome. If you would like to be a part of the program, the phone number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. This hour of the show uh, is brought to you by First Liberty of Georgia. FirstLibertyGA.com is their website. If you are a small or medium-sized business, you want to be a big business, you need access to capital, but you don't want to deal with a bank go to firstlibertyga.com first liberty of georgia tell the frost family i sent you you can be anywhere in the nation hearing me right now does not have to be in georgia they just happen to be uh, firstlibertyga.com i there's so much on impeachment and, and everything else you know so i was gone this weekend uh my buddy chris burns uh who um, has filled in for me before, sponsors the show through his company, Dynamic Money. We took a trip together. We we, we kind of both needed a break, and he took my computer from me. I, I carried it with us on the trip, and he's like, dude, you're not working. Uh, and my all of my electronic devices were confiscated, and I couldn't watch the news. I tried. I couldn't. If they caught me looking at my phone, I got in trouble. I mean, it was great. I got to unplug, which I never do, uh, but it was forcibly done to me. <laughs> but so I come back this morning, and I'm like, I, I got to talk. There's been impeachment developments. Uh, this Elizabeth Warren stuff is crazy. The battleground polling. Have you seen the battleground polling? We will get to that. But there are two stories blowing up right now, and I haven't even gotten to the Paris Accord. Uh, Kurt Suzuki. Kirk Suzuki, the baseball player, not only him, but Ryan Zimmerman. They go to the White House, and Suzuki puts on a red MAGA hat, and they are ready to burn him at the stake. This shows you everything you need to know about the country right now, particularly among the elite. Norm Ornstein, he's the, the in-house leftist at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, the guy just, I mean, he is a worrywart and, and nonstop worries, complains about the president. On and on, he's the guy who's like, oh, partisan gerrymandering is terrible now that the Republicans are doing it. Uh, never really said much when the Democrats were doing it, I don't think. But he, he just put up this tweet here. Very sad. I love Kurt Suzuki as a player, but he wore a MAGA hat to the White House, so I will not cheer him. Not quite as bad for Ryan Zimmerman, but his praise for Trump is hard to take. So so the president had the Washington Nationals over to the White House yesterday for a big event, had a lot of friends who were going. I was flying back yesterday, finally had my electronics back to me and could search Instagram, and, and here are all these friends of mine at the White House yesterday for the Nationals event. And oh my goodness, Kirk Suzuki from the Washington Nationals dares to put on a MAGA cap. The red MAGA cap, symbol of racism everywhere. It's racist. Someone actually put online that it was hate speech. To wear the MAGA cap is a symbol that you are othering others, that you believe in white supremacy and nationalism, that you support the bigoted legacy of Donald Trump, that you wish to other others, you wish to make them be something other than patriotic Americans because they're not white, blue-collar Trump supporters. I mean, this is this is actually how they look at this. You put on a red MAGA cap and go into certain sections of New York City and Los Angeles, San Francisco, you might get beat up. But it's the person wearing the cap who's intolerant. And you see the practitioners of tolerance, why they're intolerant of intolerance. They tolerate everything except intolerance. And just conveniently, intolerance is defined as everything they don't like. 
And they are, I mean, these people are seriously upset, seriously upset with Washington national players because, you know, the the basketball players, they didn't go to the White House. They stood in solidarity with the American people, tired of the usurper Donald Trump. But the baseball people, (gasps) get her. Seriously, y'all. The other story that we need to dwell on for a moment is that Sean Spicer continues to stay in Dancing with the Stars. The president has broken call-in TV shows. You, you know, the, I, I shouldn't say call-in TV shows. The, 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 the ones where the audience get to pick the winner, instead of the, the left-wing judges, the audience gets to pick the winner. And Brian Stetler from CNN is actually, he's upset about this. Lots and lots of people are upset about it. The New York Times actually has a, let, let, me, let me read you, um, where, where is the clip? I just had it. And then, yes, here we go. Here we go. This is from the New York times. I, I'm, I am not kidding you. I promise. Yes. This is me pounding the desk. I s- promise. I'm not going to swear, but I promise this is an actual quote, actual quote from the New York times this morning, the New York times. Now I, I caution you if your hands are not on a steering wheel, if you're just listening to me in general. You probably want to put your left hand palm up against your left temple and your right hand palm against your right temple and and push in gently to avoid your head exploding when I read to you this passage from the New York Times. Bad dancing by a non-professional can be disarming. It allows you to see the truth within the body that reveals character. But Mr. Spicer... The former White House press secretary and communications director for President Trump is something worse, an untruthful dancer. (gasps) (laughs) How can you be an untruthful dancer? Oh my gosh, it looks like he really has enjoyed himself. He's a liar. Lies. <laughs> An untruthful dancer. His hips. It's in his hips. We can see in his hips. He's an un- untruthful dancer. No, I'm not making this up. No, this is real. This is real. The, the, his hips lie. <laughs> Y'all. This is insane. This is insane. His Sean Spicer's hips move like he's having a good time. We know he's lying. (laughs) Y'all, they're so upset. The president has broken so many people. He has broken the the, the elite who like to watch these shows. And you know, the, the crazy thing is the people who watch these shows hate the shows. The reviewers from the New York Times and, and the like that, they're appalled that the hoi polloi could get on television and actually dance with professionals. How dare they do the waltz? Don't they know the waltz is reserved for people in the 19th century and earlier? We can't do the waltz now. They're doing the waltz. That's racist. Sean Spicer is doing a Mexican dance. That is clearly ridiculing the people of Mexico. Build a wall around Sean Spicer's hips. 
They're really actually upset about this. Uh, you know, I wish that there are days I, I, I come in here and I see these stories. This is one of them where I think, man, seriously? Y'all are upset about Sean Spicer dancing on Dancing with the Stars? That This is, this is how you're appalled and enriched and you know I, I really do think one of the things that's that is driving this sort of stuff is is the clickbait nonsense out there um that here i am i'm going to be talking about this and uh people are all opposed to sean spicer and we've got to drive up the ratings uh, of we've got to drive up the viewership of our pieces so we need to come up with some sort of hot take that encourages us to uh it, it, whip everybody into a frenzy here's the this is the critics notebook of the new york times the headline no sean spicer really can't dance he has consistently been the worst performer on dancing with the stars so why is he still on on monday night sean spicer yet again collected enough audience votes to be deemed safe on abc's dancing with the stars kate flannery was voted off what's terrible about this week's result is that the competition included a dance-off Mr. Spicer went up against Ms. Flannery. She won, according to the judges. But Mr. Spicer remains, and it's outrageous. He has a different partner this week because his regular one, Lindsay Arnold, had a death in her family. It didn't make his dancing better or worse. It remained consistent in its awfulness. Mr. Spicer's staying power has little to do with his performances. Over the past eight weeks, he's been the weakest dancer on the show. His low scores from the judges have borne that out. Bad dancing by a non-professional can be disarming. But Mr. Spicer, he's an untruthful dancer. The creation of a dancer takes years, around 10, and the great modern choreographer Martha Graham explained in her autobiography, Blood Memory, the movement of a trained dancer, she wrote, becomes clean, precise, elegant, truthful. Movement never lies. It is a barometer telling the state of the soul's weather to all who can read it. Mr. Spicer isn't trained, of course, but he has revealed much about his soul's weather through his dancing. He hides behind an egregious smile, parting his teeth to make it look as though he's been caught mid-laugh. The smile seems meant to distract from his plan of attack, never actually performing a dance, but conquering it. And so he set out to campaign, creating the website Spicer Arnold com where you can purchase mugs and hats or a set of yard signs oh. the people are stupid apparently well I mean I, listen I, I generally agree people are stupid but these people are stupid there are this is, this is a reality TV show where the audience gets to judge and now they're upset now I, I promise you, if you actually saw my show outline, I, I sit down every morning and I outline what are the big stories, what do I need to talk about. The number one story uh, uh, before I even got into the battleground polling was going to be the Paris Accord. The the Paris the president is formally pulling us out of the Paris Accord. The left is in meltdown. We will get there in a moment. But why did I go to Kurt Suzuki and Sean Spicer first instead? Because I got on social media. I made the mistake. I've got my computer back. Finally, it was given back to me so I could come home. I turn on Twitter, and the intellectual elite of America are in meltdown this morning. They, I mean, they're generally in meltdown. Reporters, pundits, think tankers, 
they're horrified that someone who would play for Washington, D.C.'s team might put on a red MAGA cap. They're horrified by that idea. Horrified that he would do that. Does he not know Washington hates Donald Trump? And here, how are we ever going to cheer for this team again? What does it say about someone that because of a player on a team putting on a cap for a politician they don't like, that could affect whether or not they want to support that team? Not just the player, but the team. And then you got a stupid reality show. Now, full disclosure, I do not watch Dancing with the Stars. I find it to be one of the most insufferable shows on television. I do not watch it. I realize there are people listening to me right now who do watch it. God bless you for watching it. It's a waste of my time. But people watch it. And the audience votes. Those are the rules. When did the left stop liking the popular vote? They've been telling us Donald Trump didn't win the popular vote. He's not a legitimate president. Sean Spicer is winning the popular vote, and now they're upset with the popular vote because it's not about the popular vote, and it never was. And it's not about Donald Trump. It never was. And it's not about Sean Spicer. It never was. It is all about them wanting to be in charge. And they occasionally run into these crude and rude reminders that they're not in charge anymore. And it upsets them. They believe the left fully has invested in the idea that everyone who is righteous agrees with them. And their beloved Kurt Suzuki, it turns out, he likes Donald Trump. Ryan Zimmerman praised the president. And there can be no forgiveness in wokeness. Forgiveness only exists in Christianity. There is no forgiveness in wokeness. So these people must pay. And you idiots who are supporting Sean Spicer, you must pay too because his hips lie. He's an untruthful dancer. And if you weren't bigoted rubes supporting the president, you would know it. Uh, this is These people are genuinely ridiculous. I'm not sure why we should take them seriously. The only reason we have to take them seriously is because they are convinced that they should be the ruling force in this country. And they hate you because they're not. They blame you for their lack of power. It is Eric Erickson here, 24 after the hour. It is election day, uh, election day around the state of Georgia and nationally in Louisiana, Virginia, Kentucky. Uh, they've got races there. Uh, the Virginia races are highly watched by Washington because the Washington press is giddy at the thought of a Democratic takeover in the um, in the House of Delegates in Virginia, which is probably going to happen. The Republicans hang on by a thread there. Uh, and the Republican Party in Virginia is not super organized. Uh, it hasn't been in the last couple of years. Uh, but you've got a governor's race in Mississippi, one in Louisiana, one in Kentucky. And you've got a lot of races here in Georgia, including uh, the, the brunch legislation, the mimosa bill, some people are calling it. Uh, I, I, I'll, I, I'll review this again later, but just there are 30 cities or counties in Georgia, uh, that are going to decide today whether or not, uh, alcohol sales can begin in restaurants as early as 11 AM. Uh, currently alcohol sales can't begin until 1230 PM. And there are other restrictions in some parts of the state on alcohol. And, and so <clears throat> the, the votes will be in Albany, Berkeley Lake, Cairo, Cartersville, Centerville, Clarksville, Cleveland, Cornelia, Covington, Cumming, Decula, Dahlonega, Lumpkin County, Darty County, Emerson, Uharley, Hampton, Henry County, Hiram, Lee County, Lilburn, Locust Grove, McDonough, 
Monroe, Morrow, Noonan, Norcross, Rome, Stockbridge, Valdosta, Watkinsville, and White. Um, and <clears throat> there are a bunch of places that have already voted on this, but those are the ones here. Um, notable for us right now in the listening area this hour, uh, Cairo, Clarksville, Cleveland, uh, Cornelia, uh, Dahlonega. We got, let's see, Lee County in there, Lilburn in there, um, Rome, Valdosta, Watkinsville, White, uh, a few more in there coming up. Um, so just remember, you've got an election today. Uh, and the, those areas in particular, you've got more than one issue. A lot of people have splossed on the ballot. And I, I'll get more into this, uh, more detail on this later. Did you hear about Greta Thunberg? Remember her? She's apparently was headed to Chile. Now, it, it, this is something that isn't getting a lot of notice around the world right now. Uh, when the Arab Spring broke out, the, the Western media was very much uh, focused on the riots in the Middle East from Libya to Egypt to Jordan to Syria to Iraq to Iran. And now there are lots of riots breaking out in Western uh, civilization. Uh, there are riots in Chile. There are riots in Lebanon. There are riots, I, th I think I saw in Hungary there were some riots. There are riots in Spain and Portugal right now. Uh, people protesting against governments, among other things. Well, they were going to have the uh, UN Climate Change Summit in Chile. And the government there has had to cancel everything because of civic unrest, so they've moved it to uh, Madrid. Well, a bunch of people got the Greta Thunberg idea of sailing to Chile to go to the conference. Thunberg herself decided to sail, and now she's on the wrong side of the planet to try to get to Madrid, and she doesn't want to fly. And she's upset. How dare they change the summit? Is she going to fly to get to Madrid? Time will tell, but they're having to change course. All these people on boats are having to change course to, to get to the climate change summit. I mean, we, we these people, listen, I, I appreciate that people really care about this issue to such an extent that they are willing to up in their entire life order and go backwards to survive. I mean, the last time we relied on wind and solar power was called the Dark Ages, and that's what these people want. you got to have windmills and solar panels. You can't have power when the sun goes down or the, or it doesn't, or the wind doesn't blow. And then you can't be on airplanes anymore. They want us to go back to sailing in boats to get around the world. Slow travel. You know, there have been all of these, these um, stories out on things like slow eating. Have you heard about slow eating? I kid you not. This is one of the, the health trends. Eat slow. Actually do chew 60 times per bite. And then your body will be filled quicker. Because you know as you're scarfing down your food, your food gets in your stomach before your stomach can signal that you're no longer hungry. So if you eat slow, your stomach can signal when you've gotten when you're full and you can stop eating. And now we're into slow travel. We should go back on boats. To go around the world, we should sail as opposed to getting there quickly and flying. And by the way, you know, even Elizabeth Warren has come. Elizabeth Warren, of all people, has come out and said, no, I fly commercial uh, carbon emissions. But Greta, Greta Thunberg wants to actually be on her prince's yacht to sail around the world. The, this whole thing is just it, it, the environmentalist movement is getting insufferable on some of this stuff. It is is genuinely crazy 
the extent to which they're going to go. And now they're all crying because they've had to move the summit from Chile to Madrid, and they've all sailed to the Western Hemisphere, and now they're going to sail back to the Eastern Hemisphere. Horrible. Imagine the people who are able to get on a plane. It's unfair. Those people should be taxed for having the advantage of flight. But it's a conscious choice, is it not? When we come back, the Paris Accord. Yes, you can call in. We do take calls, 877-97-ERIC. That's 877-973-7425. The president is formally withdrawing from the Paris Accord. I'm not sure why it took them so long to do. He's been hinting about this for a while. Um, This is making international headlines today. Uh, You should know there there is a lot of outrage over the president doing this. Um, They're actually... Yeah, I, I'm I'm surprised that there is as much as there is, given uh, how the president has been very open. He planned on doing this. I mean, this is actually the the top story at the BBC right now on the BBC News uh, site. Um, the top story, the headline: Regret as U.S. begins exit uh, from climate change agreement. Paris Climate Accord. U.S. notifies UN of intent to withdraw. Here's, here, this is the BBC again. Uh, the BBC, a, a British, uh, the British Broadcasting Corporation, it's their top story on their website, international side, right now. The U.S. has begun the process of withdrawing from the Paris Agreement, notifying the United Nations of its intention to leave as other countries express regret and disappointment at the move. The notification begins a one-year process of exiting the Global Climate Change Accord, culminating the day after the 2020 U.S. election. The U.S. government said the deal puts an unfair economic burden on Americans. The agreement brought together 188 nations to combat climate change. There's been widespread international condemnations of the U.S. move. The Paris Accord, agreed in 2015, commits the U.S. and 187 other countries to keeping rising global temperatures below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and attempting to limit them even more to a 1.5 centigrade Celsius now rise. The decision to withdraw made the U.S. the world's sole non-signatory and prompted high-level efforts by the European Union to keep the agreement on track. However, hundreds of local governments, businesses, and organizations in the U.S. have joined the We Are Still In movement, pledging to cut emissions and move to renewable energy. Isn't that fantastic? American businesses and individuals are pledging that they will take up the effort that Donald Trump is walking us out of. Isn't that a good thing? I mean, all all of us should applaud that. If your company wants to cut emission standards for your company, God bless you. If you, an individual, want to burn cow poop or have a windmill in your backyard and kill all the birds or put up solar panels, God bless you, sir, for doing so. Step up and take the initiative yourself without Uncle Sam forcing us all to do it. Put yourself in that position without requiring the government to make it happen. I think that's the perfect solution here. The fact that the left is having a full meltdown over this tells you everything you need to know about it. Uh, They want the government to force this. This seems to be, this really is the big divide. If we're honest about it, this is really the big divide between the left and the right these days. The right really does believe that you as an individual can take responsibility yourself for these things. And in so doing, you can be responsible for your destiny. And if each of us do a small bit to help, 
Well, then each of us doing a small bit amplifies out into a larger bit for the whole country. I mean, there was an article actually. Oh, where was it? I, was it in New Yorker? Somewhere. Somewhere in, in the last couple of months I read it. About a guy in San Francisco. No, no, no. He's not in San Francisco. He's in San Bernardino, which is in Southern California. Uh, and he does backyard gardening. And he helps others get their backyard gardens growing. And his his whole rationale is that that the world is basically going to die. And he's going to make life better as best he can. And if everybody steps up and does the same thing, then maybe we can prevent the world from the death that he thinks the world is going to have. And so his whole thing is he started a backyard garden, and then he helped his neighbors start backyard gardens, and they learn about rain and water collection and water runoff and gray water, et cetera. And and he tends to community gardens. And his thinking is that if more people did this, they would be learning to operate seasonally with their vegetables that they eat. It would be helping our bodies. We would become more nutritious, but we would also be putting a dent in massive commercial farming that uses pesticides and hurts the environment, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, whether you agree with him or not, whether you think it's crazy or not, you can kind of see his logic here. If I do this and then I help my five neighbors do this and then each of those five neighbors help five neighbors, we have this exponential rate of improvement where none of us now are buying vegetables at the grocery store. So we're not driving for our vegetables. Uh, we're cutting down on the need for farmers to take over land that had trees on it. We're uh, cutting out the need for farmers to drive their their carbon-fueled tractors as much. And in a small way, in his small plot of land, he can improve his life. He can improve his nutrition. He can save himself money. And he can fight back. And I think it's genius. I really do. I think the guy's a bit of a nutter, mind you. He really does seem despondent that the world is coming to an end. He fundamentally believes the world is coming to an end in the next 10 years. Maybe maybe, maybe this is a subconscious thing where all the pagans now realize Jesus really is coming back. You know, I mean, if God makes us, he's kind of woven into us. And even those of us who don't believe in him, that we know in the back of our mind, there's that little bitty voice that says there's more than this. And that little voice is now screaming that, hey, you got 10 years, you got 10 years, except he's processing his as not, I got 10 years to repent. I got 10 years to actually grow my garden. I, I'm just, I'm throwing it out there. But I mean, th- this is, this is where we are. And I think it's a good thing. I think it is a good thing for individuals and businesses to step up on their own. Because one, it shows the government's really not needed. So much of the environmental movement in the United States is wrapped around the idea that we need to be just like Europe. We need command and control. We need higher regulation. We need the government imposing on people, uh, imposing on people the desire to eat better and live well in a way the government demands. Except they, they keep changing all the nutrition regulations so that we keep changing all the time. But that's what the left wants. They want the government to mandate this stuff. They want the government to mandate healthy living. Do you know it, it was actually Hitler who, uh, and I, I don't mean this pejoratively, but seriously, if you read the Nazi Party platform, uh, they went to great lengths to encourage, uh, through the use and power of government, vegetarianism among Germans. They thought it would, would do them better. Hitler was a vegetarian. He 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 encouraged people to become vegetarians, and he used the state to do it. Hmm. But take Apple. Just just take Apple for a minute. I got a lot of issues with Apple these days. Um, their their software, man, talk about buggy. Uh, but Apple has decided uh, that it wants to be one hundred percent carbon neutral. 
So at Apple's new headquarters, the, 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 the big circle UFO spaceship-style campus, it's covered in solar panels. They get all of their power from renewable sources. Apple has major uh, server farms in North Carolina and elsewhere, and they get all their power from solar and wind. Around the world, Apple is insisting that its factories be either carbon neutral or carbon negative, meaning that they're, they're improving the world around us. And I think it's great. Will that cause Apple to call, charge higher? Well, they're already paying higher, higher prices. But you can buy an Apple product if you are a lefty who cares about this issue. You can buy an Apple product knowing that you are not damaging the environment. You can feel good about yourself. It's like buying a left-wing rosary. You put that Apple Watch on your hand, and it taps you once a day and reminds you to breathe. Lefty prayers. for being carbon neutral and offsetting everything that the Donald Trump administration is doing to destroy the world. I mean, it's it's a religious experience. It's like a rosary. Put on the Apple Watch and breathe and, and thank Tim Cook and Steve Jobs for having the foresight to save the planet from the evil, awful Donald Trump by doing carbon offsets. It's a good thing. And we didn't need the Paris Accord for it, did we? Do you know what the Paris Accord is? The, the Paris Accord is a voluntary program. You see, they're, they're actually, what, what the way the Paris Accord worked is that each government would come forward with a plan for that government on how to become carbon neutral, on how to stop the world's temperatures from rising. And the rest of the world, it's, it's unenforceable. And many of the countries, when the Paris Accord came out, including many European countries, what their goals were were the things that they were already doing. So it really wasn't a sacrifice. It, they were already doing these things. They just put it into the Paris Accord to make themselves feel good about it. See, see, we're now really doing, they really committed to these things. But there's no enforcement provision in the Paris Accord, they, which is somewhat funny uh, that the one of the, the arguments for staying in the Paris Accord is that, well, there's no binding enforcement, so why not stay? Well, if there's no binding enforcement, why not leave? Because what the rest of the world doesn't seem to understand in this argument is that the Paris Accord would give the president, because he signed it as an executive agreement, the president would be able to get some executive power based on that to enact executive orders to ensure that the American government comply with the Paris Accord that Congress did not ratify. And that's why Donald Trump wanted to get rid of it. The, the hilarious irony here is that in so doing, the president's, the end of the Paris Accord will come the day after the election next year. We are now a year, actually a, a year minus a day from the election. Yesterday was 365 days. Today is 364 days until the election. The Paris Accord, based on today's notice, would expire on Wednesday, the day after the election in 2020. Now, why would the president do that? Because this is going to be a huge campaign issue for the Democrats. Well, of course it's going to be a huge campaign issue for the Democrats. That's exactly what the president wants. I want to play for you this audio. This is um, Ilhan Omar at a Bernie Sanders rally. And I want you to listen to what she has to say about Bernie Sanders. The acknowledgement of pain and suffering is personal for both of us. The fight for human rights is undeniable. 
And when we recognize injustices of the past and present, whether it is genocide against Jewish people, Armenians or Rwandans or Bosnians or Native Americans or more, we recognize, we realize that that recognition isn't about punishing our political foes, but leading within a moral obligation. I am beyond honored and excited for a president who will fight against Western imperialism and fight for a just world. Western imperialism. Western imperialism and a just world. That's what Bernie Sanders is fighting against, y'all. Western imperialism and, a ju- and, and fighting for, for just causes around the world against the United States. Like the Paris Accord. When the Democrats, like Ilhan Omar, go out onto the campaign trail and start talking about Western imperialism and genocide and how the United States is to blame, it's all the United States' fault. There will be a segment of of America's left-leaning population that is so, so focused now on white guilt that they'll buy it. They'll go for it. They'll agree. But most won't. Most people aren't actually going to go out there and say, hey, we should wreck our economy and the growth in our economy to make Europeans feel good about themselves or make the left feel good about themselves. We're dealing with people who looked at Kurt Suzuki putting on a red baseball cap and decided he, though they've cheered for him in the past, is now bad. We're talking about a group of people who are upset that the audience of Dancing with the Stars support Sean Spicer. These are the people who are going to be upset with anything Donald Trump does, but more more than that, they also there's a a a fundamental idea I think that has creeped into progressivism that the United States is bad. And I don't think that translates well to to most people. And if anything, I think the president waiting for today to cancel the Paris Accord. When he, could, he could have done it for four years. The president could have done it the entire time. And he waited until now. And he made it the big issue for the day after the election. That the day after the election, the Paris Accord expires. This now becomes a campaign issue. And the Democrats can't help themselves in the way they talk about it. The Democrats cannot help themselves in how they approach the issue of climate change. They do not seem to understand fundamentally that the American people are not with them on this issue. They do not seem to understand fundamentally that Americans are not willing to wreck their economy to make themselves feel good about the planet uh, cooling or warming or anything else. They don't want to give up their fossil fuel-based cars for an electric car that, by the way, the harvesting of the lithium wrecks the, the, the world. They do not want to give up their hamburgers in favor of lab-created synthetic meat. They do not want to pay more for their power bills. They do not want to live in the dark like in California. And yet that's what the left offers. And if they're going to make 2020 about that sort of stuff, this is going to be an issue that hurts them. The president, it was a genius political move for the president to wait until now, a year before the election, to make this issue. 
because it will drive the Democrats to hysterics. This seems to be a signal. In my mind, this seems to be a signal from the president and his campaign team that they understand the Democrats cannot help but overplay their hand on this issue with their rhetoric. And they're hoping that they do. I got to tell you, I feel a little vindicated. Uh, I've said this on the program a couple of times now. I, I don't know who Latinx is. I, I don't know what a Latinx is. And you hear Elizabeth Warren say this. It's always uh, really rich white progressives who say Latinx. Latinx. It, it is a gender neutral Latino Latina. Uh, Latino if it's a man, Latina if it's a woman, and uh, someone came up with the brilliant idea of going with Latinx for men and women because they didn't want to just say Latino. You know, most uh, most of my friends uh, who are Hispanic go by Hispanic, and in fact, someone finally decided to poll the Hispanic community, and it turns out uh, a plurality support Hispanic, and, and right after Hispanic is Latino. Only 2%, uh, well within the margin of error, uh, it, it could be actually zero people, 2% say Latinx is acceptable. I guarantee you that the people in that poll who said Latinx is acceptable are progressive academics. They're members of the Hispanic community who are progressive academics or, or activists because those are the people who use the term. No one in the Latino Hispanic community uses the term. And yet Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris and the like are all out there talking about the Latinx community. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, talks about the Latinx community. She, of course, a uh, hyper-progressive activist, a uh, member of Congress. She is in the Latino community. She, I think, is the only person of prominence who actually uses it, who actually is Hispanic. And the Democrats, so this all comes from a Democratic pollster who essentially is going out warning Democrats, stop using this word, Latinx. Nobody uses the word. It sounds condescending to the Latino community. Stop using it. And Elizabeth Warren can't help herself. Hip, as Ann Richards would say, hip herself. Um, she can't do it. And people are trying to, it's just, it's a silly, silly thing. By the way, and I want to spend time, when we, when we come back in the next hour, I want to spend some time on this. Um, but the Elizabeth Warren versus Donald Trump story is heating up. And it, it's worrying people because Nate Cohen at the New York Times, who is now respectable in a way that, um, what's his name? Um Nate Silver, Nate Silver of 538. He's no longer acceptable, and he's no longer acceptable to the left because he dared to suggest that President Trump has a shot in 2020 and that Democrats are being unreasonable in some of their characterizations of the president. And so he's he's anathema now. And so they've got Nate Cohen, who, who is at the New York Times and is essentially now doing what uh, Nate Silver used to do at the New York Times, polling and vetting polls and looking at stats. Well... On Monday, the New York Times and Siena College released a poll of how Donald Trump is faring against three leading Democratic presidential candidates, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren. In six critical suing states, all of which Trump won in 2016, the result contains bad news for a Warren despite, how her despite her strong showing with Democratic primary voters in Iowa. Against President Trump, she performs worse than Biden or Sanders, with Trump leading or tied in five of six swing states. Biden leads or is tied with Trump in five of the six states, while the Times-Siena poll shows Trump and Sanders running essentially even. 
The Times, Nate Cohen, who oversaw the poll, wrote of Warren, quote, not only does she underperform her rivals, but the poll is also suggests the race could be close enough for the difference to be decisive. One of the key takeaways here is that the president is way better positioned in the battleground states than he is nationally in the polling, that the national polling is skewing our sense of the race. You should start looking at the battleground polls. I mean, I sound like a broken record in saying this. I've been saying this for for the whole time I've been on the show since August when we launched. The battleground polls are meaningful. The the national polls are not. The national polling is meaningful to the extent that you've got a double-digit gap between people like the president and Joe Biden. That reflects down into the swing states, and that is exactly what we're seeing. When the president has a double-digit gap in the polling, that affects the swing states. The margin is so big that it affects the polling in the swing states. But when you look at people like Elizabeth Warren against Donald Trump, Notice how the national margin is closer to Warren and Trump, and that reflects in the battleground states as well, where in the battleground states, the president's margin is so strong, he could potentially dominate Elizabeth Warren. And guess what? The president has more money than Warren. He can go on and start defining her in a way she can't define him over the next couple of months. That's not going to help Elizabeth Warren. If she's the nominee and it's looking like she could be, the president will win re-election and the Democrats are starting to realize that. Y'all, I would like to thank Quip for sponsoring this week's show. Y'all, I love my Quip toothbrush. I've bragged about it forever. I continue to brag about Quip because it is a great toothbrush. In fact, I took a trip this past weekend. My Quip went with me, obviously. It goes with me everywhere and I really do get two minutes of brushing my teeth. Now, if you're not familiar with Quip, Quip is actually, it's the size of a regular toothbrush. It works on two AAA batteries. They send you the battery or one AAA battery. They send it with the Quip and it just works. Your toothbrush gives you great sonic vibrations for two minutes. It pulses for every 30, every 30 seconds it pulses so that you know to switch it around in your mouth to, to get an even brushing. My dentist, my orthodontist, they both think I've been bleaching my teeth. I haven't. I've just been brushing really, really well because the quip vibrations are great to clean and the pulse makes sure that I know I, I've got two minutes to go. It turns itself off after two minutes and it makes sure that I'm getting an even cleaning by, by pulsing every 30 seconds as I switch it around. If you haven't quite tri- qu- bleh, haven't tried quip, let me slow down. If you haven't tried Quip, you should. You really actually should. Uh, It's a great toothbrush. I've tried the $100 supersonic toothbrushes. Nothing comes close to the Quip toothbrush. Nothing has incentivized me to get a two-minute brush into my teeth like Quip. You'll find that's the case with you, my wife, my kids. We've all got Quips. Quip starts at just $25. You can get your first refill free at getquip.com slash Erickson, E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N. It's a simple way to support the show. It's a simple way to get a better toothbrush. You go to getquip, G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash Erickson, and you'll get a refill free. Your brush head, every three months, they'll send you a new one. Your first one will be free. Go right now to getquip, G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash Erickson. Take advantage of this great deal. Thanks to Quip for sponsoring the show. Good morning. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia, around the nation, and on Facebook Live. The phone number, if you would like to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. 
uh, is the phone number. You are more than welcome to call us. Um, congratulations to the University of Georgia in its fight against uh, the Florida Gators. The governors of Georgia and Florida made a bet on the game. Uh, if the Gators won, pre- uh, Governor Kemp, I started to say president, <laughs> Governor Kemp would head to the Florida Everglades to hunt pythons. And if uh, Georgia won, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, would head up here to hunt hogs uh, with governor. So Ron DeSantis is going to go hog hunting now. Uh, I want to begin this hour with this story that is still making all sorts of waves from yesterday when I was gone. I was flying back from a, a guy's trip. Oh, it was. We'll 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 discuss it later. <laughs> um, and and my my computer was confiscated from me over the weekend. I was not allowed to work. Um, seriously, the the buddy I was going with was very insistent that he would smash it if I tried to work. Uh, they took all of my electronic devices from me, so I could not work and keep up with the news. I am a workaholic. They know it. It was basically a detox weekend for me, uh, rehab weekend by not working. <laughs> It was the least stressed I've ever been. I didn't have my computer to stare at social media or anything. But but there was a big story. Um, the, the New York Times upshot, uh, which is run overseen by Nate Cohen, their, their in-house pollster, they decided to forget the national polling. The national polling skews to the Democrats because it's very hard to weed out the Chicago's and LA's and New York's and Miami's of the world where uh, the president is behind in these major urban corridors. They decided instead to conduct polls of battleground states. Uh, And they did a, a polling of several thousand people in battleground states, I want to say it was 3,000 some odd people. They wanted to get margin of errors. Yes, uh, 3,766 registered voters, not likely voters, but registered voters. And here's the thing. This is what's so so significant here. One of the things that the, the uh, battleground polling for the New York Times did is they did not talk to people who said they would register or whose registration had lapsed. They talked to people who were actually registered. You know, a lot of times um, people will count registered voters to people who are not registered but intend to register, and a lot of those people don't actually register. So this is a pure voter registration pool of 3,766 registered voters. Now, keep in mind as well, here's the thing. A registered voter pool leans to the Democrats. All voters tend to lean to the Democrats by about uh, four to six points. A registered voter poll leans to the Democrats two to four points. And a likely voter poll can lean to the Democrats up to two points, uh, but tends to be a more precise record. The, the, the narrower the pool of voters, the better it is for the Republicans. And the reason is because uh, Republicans do tend to vote in larger numbers than Democrats, but there tend to be more Democrats. So in, in per, uh, percentage proportions of, of each group, Republicans vote more than Democrats, uh, but there are more Democrats. So they, they need a smaller percentage turnout to match the Republicans. Uh, but a lot of registered voters are people who are Democrat, but they have no intention of ever voting or people who classify themselves as Democrats. So you've got some biases uh, by looking at registered voters, but it's too soon to look at likely voters. So registered voters, the best you can do, they try to balance it out as best they can. It still certainly leans to the Democrats a, a little bit, but it's not good. 
it's not good for the Democrats in the battlegrounds. Saying all of that about the registered voter poll, um, if it is registered voters as opposed to likely voters, it's not good, particularly for Sanders and for Warren. There is something, though, that you here in Georgia listening to me right now need to know. This is the New York Times. Not favorable to the president. This is a college poll, Siena College, which college polling, I, I, I'm a little more skeptical of, but Siena College actually does do good polling, which is why the New York Times went with them. But let me give you the swing states in the poll. Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, Arizona, and North Carolina. Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, Arizona, North Carolina. If you need it in alphabetical order, because that totally confuses you, Arizona, Florida, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Notice the state that's not on the list. Georgia is not on the list. As much as the Democrats want to make it a swing state, it is not on the list of swing states for the New York Times right now. That That's, that's actually a, a very interesting point that you need to note here, that it is not considered. Arizona, a state that always goes Republican, is listed as a swing state, but Georgia is not. Florida is listed as a swing state, but Georgia is not. North Carolina is listed as a swing state, but Georgia is not. That's pretty notable that they're not considering Georgia a swing state. But how do the candidates fare? This I find to be very interesting. In North Carolina, a state that looks like it may have trended Democrat, Donald Trump beats Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren, the three Democratic frontrunners. In Arizona, the president beats Bernie Sanders but loses to Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren. In Florida... The president beats Sanders and Warren and loses to Biden. In Wisconsin, he's even with Elizabeth Warren and loses to Sanders and Biden. In Pennsylvania, again, he's even with Sanders and loses to Sanders and Biden. And in Michigan, he's tied with Biden. Sanders would beat him, and he would beat Elizabeth Warren. Allegedly. Allegedly. Now, there's there's data here that we need to process particularly on Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren is becoming the hot new thing for the Democrats. They, the, the media has been trying to make Elizabeth Warren happen for a while now, and she's having a real hard time. In fact, even the Biden campaign is sensing some vulnerability here. Let me play this clip from the Biden campaign about Elizabeth Warren speak all night. So, you know, we know that we're connecting with voters. Voters are responding because they want somebody who has a record of progressive accomplishment. He is the person in this race who's actually gotten things done, who's actually made change. You know, you referenced uh, Medicare for all. And, and you know, Senator Warren, I think, has um, spent many months not answering the question about whether or not uh, she but would she raise taxes it. on the middle class. She just class recently answered in order it. To pay. But not in a straightforward way, because every expert from uh, the plan. left, the right, 
the right, and it shows that the uh, employer tax that she's putting forward, $9 trillion in new employer taxes that are going to be passed along to employees. She has a tax on uh, financial transactions that's going to impact uh, the, the investments Wasn't that middle-class Biden considering financial, tax, uh, financial transaction tax I, at one point as well? My point is that she has not been forthcoming about uh, whether that tax is going to hit the middle class. Correct. She has not. And voters are deeply skeptical of her. Again, let me now let me give you the breakdown on these numbers just so you get a sense of it. In Michigan, President Trump, among registered voters, and keep in mind, again, registered voters lean Democrat. So add two points. If we're down to likely voters, add two points to the polls. Among registered voters in Michigan, Donald Trump would beat Elizabeth Warren by six points probably eight points among likely voters. In Pennsylvania, they're tied, which means among likely voters, probably the president would win by about 2%. Same in Wisconsin. In Florida, the president would win by four points among registered voters, probably six points among likely voters. In Arizona, Elizabeth Warren is up two on the president among registered voters. Among likely voters, they're probably tied. In North Carolina, the president's up three, up five among likely voters. So in other words, the president would win all of the states, more likely than not, that he won in 2016 if Elizabeth Warren's the nominee. And now consider Bernie Sanders. Again, add two points for likely voters. So among registered voters, Sanders is up two in Michigan, so tied with the president among likely voters. In Pennsylvania, Sanders is up one, so the president is probably one point ahead of Sanders among likely voters in Pennsylvania. In Wisconsin, Sanders is up two, so probably tied with the president among likely voters. In Florida, the president is already up a point among registered voters, so up three with likely. Same in Arizona, president up one with registered, three with likely. North Carolina, the president is up three with registered, probably up five. Same as with Elizabeth Warren. Only Joe Biden gives Donald Trump a run for his money. Right now, um, Biden is up three in Pennsylvania. You add in, like, make it likely voters, you're probably up one. Same in Wisconsin, up one. In Florida, Biden is right now up two, so they're probably tied among likely voters. In Arizona, Biden's up five. So, I mean, he is actually up three points among likely voters, probably. The president is up two in North Carolina among registered voters, so probably up four among likely voters. So the president could potentially hold Michigan and he could hold North Carolina against Biden. Biden gives him the, the, the strongest run for the money. Warren and Sanders do not. So the, there are a couple of takeaways here that, that you need to understand. And I realize this is numbers heavy. I don't like to do numbers heavy on radio because it, it, it kind of gets muddied. Um, but let me give you this in a nutshell now that I've, I've done the deep dive on this for you. Elizabeth Warren does badly against Donald Trump among even registered voters, and the registered voter pool tends to lean Democrat. You get closer to likely voters, she does even worse against the president, and yet the Democrats look set to replace Joe Biden with her uh, because Biden is still stumbling around. The problem Elizabeth Warren has, though, is black voters. Black voters uh, do not like Elizabeth Warren. They're having a hard time connecting with her. Bernie Sanders uh, has staying power for millennials, but he's not going to be the nominee. Bernie Sanders is running out of steam. Joe Biden is running out of money. 
And that gives Elizabeth Warren an advantage into the Democratic campaign, which is one reason so many pollsters are focusing on it right now. You do need to understand that, that the national polling is shaping coverage of these candidates. Uh, the national polling shows that Elizabeth Warren is going up, so the media is giving her more attention, which creates a feedback loop into the polling until the media starts going negative on her. The media has been working so hard to make Elizabeth Warren happen, they're having a hard time going negative on the one they wanted. But it's happening with the battleground polling. That's why people are so upset with Nate Cohen today is because the left really wants Elizabeth Warren to happen. And here comes Nate Cohen from the New York Times saying, wait a second, guys, you make Elizabeth Warren the Democratic nominee, Donald Trump is going to get reelected. And people are gasping. How can this be? I, I realized that in our bubbles, progressive and conservative, but both progressive and conservative in our bubbles, we have a hard time accepting that if we like or hate someone, the other side could like or hate them. We, we see all the time that this situation um, where we have voters who are not Democrat, they're not Republican, and they make up their own mind. And they decide, yeah, I don't like this person, but I like their policies. And the left is having a hard time coming to, to terms with that with Donald Trump. There are a lot of independent voters out there. Now, granted, independent voters tend to be a, typically a class of Republican voters, but more than that, there are a lot of voters out there who think, you know, I don't like Donald Trump, but this woman scares me. Her plan to tax my employers, to tax my small business, to tax my investment income, to, to tax my money, it scares them. And it turns out as much as people don't like President Trump, uh, there's so much that they dislike about these Democratic candidates that the president could win re-election. And there is another takeaway here that you need to understand. This overshadows impeachment. Right now, the Democrats have nothing on the president with which to impeach him. They do not have a bipartisan impeachment process. And if they're not going to have a bipartisan impeachment process and the Republicans hold the line, they're not going to be able to impeach the president. It all looks to be in vain. And in fact, I've got some audio I'll play for you here in a bit. Voters simply do not care. They do not care about impeachment. It is not something that the voters are energized by or enthused by, and they're thinking we're less than a year now from the election. Just let us decide. And the Democrats are playing into the president's strengths here because as they make Elizabeth Warren the nominee and the polls show Elizabeth Warren would lose to the president, the Democrats pushing impeachment just gives them an argument of, listen, they're trying to get rid of me because they know I can beat Elizabeth Warren. And that, again, builds a feedback loop. Last takeaway here. Georgia is not on the list. There are a lot of people who want to make Georgia happen for the Democrats, including Stacey Abrams. Georgia is not on the list. Georgia may become a battleground state, but it's not going to be a swing state. Georgia certainly has issues. The Republicans cannot take advantage of Georgia. They can't take it for granted, but it's not going to be a swing state. It's going to be a battleground state in that Democrats will put money into Georgia to make Republicans play here so that Republicans can't spend money elsewhere. It's a chess game. If the Democrats have more money than the Republicans, the Democrats put money into Georgia to force the Republicans to put money in Georgia so Republicans can't put money somewhere else. That's, that's the nature of Georgia right now. Georgia is going to be a money sink for the candidates. Georgia is not actually going to be in play for the Democrats, except to the extent that there are state legislative seats in the suburbs. You know, there's a big um, a list out today, the, the top 10 most vulnerable House Democrats. Lucy McBath is not in the top 10. 
the Republicans are not making a huge play to pick off Lucy McBath right now. They may later, but they're not right now. But the Democrats do understand fundamentally that Georgia is not a swing state. It's just a state where they can make Republicans nervous about the state legislature for redistricting to force Republican money into the state and keep it out of other areas. It is all Georgia is a strategic game for the Democrats in terms of money, not actually in terms of votes. The governor uh, has added more to his health care plan changes. I want to talk about his health care plan uh, when we come back, just given the the dynamics of it. Um, I, I want to hold it because this is a short segment. You know, let, let me let me deviate from the my show outline of what I was going to talk about right now. I, I, I want to mention this. Um, so I, I took a break this weekend. Uh, reason I wasn't here yesterday. I do not do vacations well. Uh, You talk to any member of my family and they will attest to you that I am a complete workaholic. Uh, I I, I really am blessed in that I love my job. The the problem is that it it often interferes with my work-life balance with my family. And and it's something I've got to be mindful of that uh, I could sit in my office the entire day and and work and write and and read and, and do show prep and completely ignore that I've got a family on the other side of the door. It is it is something that I struggle with, and I have been inordinately stressed out. You know, launching this show, um, it, it's not easy to launch a show like this, particularly we're not working with a syndicator. We're doing it all ourselves. We're our own ad team. We're our own affiliate relations, uh, trying to, to grow the show in addition to maintaining another show and a website and, and all this other stuff. It, it's It's been stressing me out. So some good friends of mine just finally decided, you know what, we're taking you on a trip. Uh, we went out west for three days, uh, four days, and it confiscated my electronics from me. I could not work. Uh, all I could do was have a good time. And it is, it, it, it's something I needed. Um, y'all, I, I, I spend my entire day, my, my, I mean, my personal motto is, is why pray when I can worry? And I got a lot of worrying in my life. And it was nice to be distracted from all of it for a few days. I needed it. I needed the recharge. Now, the downside is that I was on the west co- uh, out west, wasn't on the coast precisely, but I was in the, the Pacific time zone, which has got me thoroughly uh, messed up today. I had a Benadryl last night to go to sleep, and I'm still feeling the, the lag effects to some degree of it. My brain fog is slowly lifting here as we, kind of a cloudy day outside. I can see out the window. But, man, it was necessary. The, the ability to unplug for just a few days and not think about everything that's going on um, mattered. And it, it was nice to be with friends uh, to do that with who I wasn't the guy on the radio to them. I was just a friend of theirs. Um, it, it's It's been a hard thing to get used to being on TV and radio in some cases, it, developing friendships with people who view you more as the guy on the radio than just someone they want to hang out with. And all we did was hang out. Uh, we watched, uh, I, I do not recommend it. You would be horribly offended. Um, but the movie um, Good Boys, I found to be hysterical. Uh, and I sat on the couch on Saturday night with a buddy of mine, and we watched that movie and died laughing the entire time. And and that's what I haven't done anything like this in Gosh, I, I, I don't know that I've done anything like this before. And it was just, I got to start making this a yearly thing. It was a lot of fun. Um, 
So I, I highly recommend a, a actually unplugging. I can now say I, I've practiced what I'm preaching because I've always been someone to tell people you got to unplug, you got to get away from the office. And I can say it and with the knowledge that it's not something I actually do. I'm a hypocrite when it comes to that. And it, now I've kind of been forced to do it for a weekend and it was absolutely worth doing um, just to clear your mind and, and stop worrying about stuff. And I could feel the worries creeping back in on the plane ride home, but I've kept them at bay for you today. Now, when we come back, Governor Brian Kemp, he is expanding his health care plan options. Democrats really unhappy, but it actually sounds like a good plan. I'll explain when we come back what the deal is. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you would like to call in and be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. This half hour, sponsored by First Liberty of Georgia. Whether you're a small business, a medium-sized business, you want to grow to be a big business, but you don't want to deal with bank bureaucracy and getting access to capital, go to firstlibertyga.com, talk to the Frost family, tell them I sent you. You do not have to be in Georgia. Just anywhere in the United States, they can help you. FirstLibertyGA.com. Thank you to them for their continued sponsorship of this program. Uh, if you want to sponsor the program, you can drop us a line, contact at theresurgent.com. Shoot me an email, eric at theresurgent.com. Uh, we do all sorts of ads and stuff here. Uh, okay, um, we need to move into the governor's health care plan. I'm trying to pull up. Where is the AJC story? I had it up a minute ago. Oh, I, I've got the story up. I mentioned in the first hour. I want to mention it again um, because I know we're, we're all over the state of Georgia now. There are elections. If you're listening to my voice right now and it is before 7 p.m., that's when polls close in Georgia. If you're listening to my voice now and it is before 7 p.m., go vote. Uh, the odds are your city has a municipal election or a SPLOS today. Uh, more likely than not, it does, and you can go vote. Um, there is also the brunch bill, the mimosa bill, some call it. It would allow restaurants that serve alcohol to begin serving as early as 11 a.m. Uh, the state made this a local issue, and some cities and counties have rejected it, but uh, they're, they're going to try. Here are the places, uh, the 31 areas of the state that have this on the ballot today. Again, you can go vote against it if you oppose it, but uh, the issue is can restaurants that serve alcohol start serving as early as 11 a.m. on a Sunday? This is the, the hipster brunch bill to allow the hipsters, while you're in church, they want to go drink their mimosas at the local Applebee's, so let them if you want. Here, here are the places. Albany, Albany, as my wife would correct me. Berkeley Lake, Cairo, Cartersville, Centerville, Clarksville, Cleveland, Cornelia, Covington, Cumming, Decula, Dahlonega and Lumpkin County, Darty County, Emerson, Uharley, Hampton, Henry County, Hiram, Lee County, Lilburn, Locust Grove, McDonough, Monroe, Morrow, Noonan, Norcross, Rome, Stockbridge, Valdosta, Watkinsville, and White County. Um, there are also in the athens Clark County area, there's a Splost, I think, that's on the ballot today. A lot of counties have Splost on the ballot today. They put them on the ballot, interestingly enough, in odd-numbered years, more often than not because you have such a low turnout in odd-numbered years. Only the people who really want the rest of us to pay higher taxes turn out and show up at the polls to vote for the Splost. 
they put them on these ballots to make sure that's happening. Now, there are also elections in other parts of the country as well. Louisiana, Kentucky, uh, Mississippi, uh, the Virginia state legislature is up on the ballot today. Democrats expected to completely take over the state legislature in Virginia. Um, The media is going to be making big hay out of this. Some of the races to keep in mind, though, are, uh, I'm sorry, the Louisiana gubernatorial race, it's next week, it's not this week, it's... um, uh, Kentucky and Mississippi today. Uh, Matt Bevin, the president's been campaigning for him. The Democrat in uh, Kentucky was expected to be widely ahead of him and collapsed at the last minute. The Democrats in, in Kentucky divided and the Republicans rallying around Matt Bevin. The president has gone out there and campaigned for him, done a big rally there. Same in Mississippi, big rally there as well. And, um, We'll see how those races turn out. We can talk about them tomorrow. The only reason to talk about them is if things go really badly against the Republicans, which Democrats are hoping. Otherwise, you won't hear any news. Now, let's get into uh, the governor's plan for Medicaid. There there are criticisms already that the governor will not cover enough of the poor. Here's essentially what you need to know. The people who get screwed the most in healthcare in this country are the working poor. The people who have jobs and they can't get benefits. Under Obamacare, Obamacare disincentivized poor people working, and the reason being is because the health care costs for the working poor, people who have a job and make less than $30,000 a year, the health care costs for those people went up, and the taxes on those people went up at a higher percentage of earnings than for anyone else to pay for people who don't work to get health care. That's the reality of it. Uh, the people who don't work, who need health care, they go on to Medicaid. There are working poor people in this country who they don't qualify for Medicaid because they have a job that puts them outside of certain poverty criteria for Medicaid. And they need health insurance, and Obamacare caused their costs to go up. And the media dances around the subject. The Democrats deny it's true. But every objective study has shown repeatedly that the working poor in this country had their health care costs go up more than anyone else because of Obamacare. So the governor wants to deal with that situation. And according to the AJC, tens of thousands of poor Georgians could receive Medicaid or subsidized employer health insurance under the second part of a wide-ranging proposal by the governor unveiled Monday seeking to revamp health care costs. Now, you should know tomorrow evening I'm going to interview the governor, so on Thursday I'll bring you the audio of our interview here um, talking about his health care waiver and stuff. They're calling this his Georgia Pathways proposal. One of the things that the governor intends to do is require that these people who get it, they're either working or volunteering. His proposal, it's known as an 1115 waiver, goes after the state's poorest residents, targets them to give them health care. There are 408,000 adult Georgians who make less than the federal poverty limit, which is about $12,000 a year, but they do not qualify for Medicaid. The governor estimates a fraction of those, about 50,000 people, will be enrolled under his plan. They need coverage, but they've run out of realistic options. We will shake up the status quo and give 408,000 Georgians the opportunity to purchase affordable health insurance. We will bring hope to what many think is a hopeless situation. 
The way that they intend to deal with this is they want to extend Medicaid eligibility to people who have jobs or are enrolled in schools or are engaged in specific types of community service with nonprofits uh, to help the poor lift themselves out of poverty. Essentially, the governor's position is that we should be helping the deserving poor. And now, I got to get into a history lesson with you here, and I don't mean to bore you. Um, the the poor in this country used to be divided into two categories: the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. Those are cold terms. If you go back to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, though, Franklin Roosevelt would talk about the the work the deserving poor or the working poor. Now, what's the difference between the deserving poor and the undeserving poor? Well, Franklin Roosevelt talked about this. There are those who, through no fault of their own, have physical or mental impairment or other situations that that occur in life that have put them behind and made them poor, and we have an obligation to help those people get back up on their feet and back into the workforce. You know, for all of Franklin Roosevelt's problems, one of the things Roosevelt recognized is that there was value to hard work and trying to get people work. I mean, that was the whole point of of the New Deal uh, during during the Depression was to put people into work, not just give government handouts, but actually give people jobs, even if it was the government paying them to dig ditches so that they could earn money. There was something sold fulfilling about work you know i mean not not to get theological here but we see this in the garden of eden uh the garden of eden is uh god's vision for our relationship between man and god and one of the things god told adam and eve was to tend to the garden there was work when we get to the new heavens and the new earth there's going to be work we're all going to have jobs because there's something soul rewarding about work will you be able to take time off yes will it be the most enjoyable job you've ever had absolutely i guess i'll be a talk radio show host in heaven it is, it is It is. a wonderful, I, I couldn't ask for a better job. But there will be work. We see this in the Garden of Eden. Uh, there's something that the Democrats, many of the Democrats, I think, have forgotten, uh, and it is reflected there in Scripture. Jobs, working does something for you. Working shows you you have a level of self-worth. Working shows you you can survive and take care of yourself. Working shows you, uh, teaches you an ethic. It teaches you an honesty. It teaches you a fair play. And Franklin Roosevelt used to talk about the deserving poor. The deserving poor were those through who, for no fault of their own, were on hard times and we needed to help them. Some we would always have to help. Others we could just help get them back on their feet. And then there were the undeserving poor, the people who made terrible life choices and then wanted a bailout for their own choices. And those were the people the government wasn't going to help. During the Johnson administration and the the Great Society, Johnson decided that in a country as wealthy as ours, we needed to ditch the distinction between the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. It was just the poor. So whether you deserved it or not, the government was going to bail you out. Governor Kemp, in his plan... I think is more realistic in what's happening and what needs to happen. There are people who through no fault of their own, through physical or mental defect or bad things happening in life have fallen on hard times. And there are those with physical or mental defect who we're always going to have to help. And those people by and large are eligible for Medicaid and the government will help keep them on their feet or keep them sustained 
knowing they're not actually going to be able to work. But then there are others who, in hard times, for lack of education, for one of a college degree or a high school diploma, they're working, they're trying to make ends meet, they're barely making ends meet, and they can't afford health care now because Obamacare really did impact those people negatively. So the governor is saying, you know what, we're going to help those people. As long as they're working or they're volunteering, we will subsidize their health care costs. There are 408,000 of these people. The governor actually thinks only about fifty to 60,000 will take advantage of it. But one of the things they're going to do is they want to require a job. And it should tell you everything you need to know about the left that they're challenging that aspect of it. They don't believe you should have to work for your health care. They believe it is a right. See, this is why the left is fighting this. They fundamentally believe health care is a right, that you should be able to get it no matter what. So if you're tying health care to working, that means it's a privilege. It's not a right. It's, it's something you get because you've done something else. And they don't like that, and they want to fight it. And they're probably going to tie it up in court. And some progressive courts are saying, wait a second, you can't tie health care to work. The governor's doing it slightly differently, hoping he can get around it. Uh, essentially, what a lot of states did is they did these big plans and they decided it was too much so they wanted to scale it back by adding a work requirement to narrow the pool of people after they'd already given it and courts are like wait a second you've already given this people you can't now curtail it by making them work so Kemp out of the gate is saying we're going to make you work out of the gate on this now let me read you some of the AJC on this proposal one part seeks to lower insurance premiums by setting aside $300 million in public money the government could pay to insurance firms to cover high cost claims the second piece would also shift $2.7 billion in subsidies from federal to state control to reduce costs to lower income policyholders. Each of the waiver proposals must be approved by the federal government. No guarantee that'll happen, but they hope so. The proposals also have to withstand court scrutiny, no simple task because of a series of federal lawsuits that have forced states to overall how they handle health benefits tied to employment. The revamp will face stiff criticism from Democrats and healthcare advocacy groups who say nothing short of full Medicaid expansion will cover hundreds of thousands of uninsured Georgians, boost the state's economy, and sure up the flagging network of rural hospitals. It's also met criticism from advocates of waivers that do more than Kemp's would. Grady Memorial Hospital said they're deeply disappointed. The governor wants to move quickly, though, and there will be a public commenting period. Now, here, here's what the governor proposes. Uh, recipients would have to show 80 hours of activity a month. That could be through a job, volunteering, community service, vocational training, full-time, post-secondary education, or a limited set of other activities. The time would have to be documented and qualify under state guidelines. Under the state's guidelines, community service won't qualify unless it's at a registered nonprofit. Taking care of sick relatives would not be eligible. This is not a free handout, they say. Kemp's aides project that the 50,000 or so residents that the waiver would cover would change from year to year as they cycle up out of Medicaid and into private insurance available through Obamacare to working class owners. His administration pegs the cost for the first year of the program at $128 million, with the state on the hook for $36 million, the federal government covering the rest. That's less than half of what the governor expects to put toward his initiative for high-income insurance customers, which is expected to cost $104 million in the first year. The point is not to throw money at the problem of the uninsured poor, but to push recipients towards full-time employment. In other words, the governor in offering this health care plan to the working poor who don't qualify for Medicaid 
is trying to incentivize them to develop their work ethic and get into the private workforce to boost their income, to boost their ability to get health care insurance. This is, again, one of the fundamental differences between left and the right in this country right now. You know, I hear all the time now the left say, uh, quoting Jesus, the poor you shall always have. And that's true. But what Jesus did not say is we'll always have the exact same poor people. Just we'll have the, the class of people known as the poor. The left seems to interpret that as the same poor people are always going to be poor. And they, they preclude themselves from believing that these poor people could advance up the income ladder and move into the middle class and the upper middle class and improve their livelihoods. Republicans, on the other hand, think that, yes, we will always have the poor, but it doesn't have to be the same person. We can help the person who is classified as poor uh, get a job, get better earnings, and become middle class, freeing up a spot of subsidy and help for the government for the next poor person to come through. And we'll elevate that person. And this will become a feedback loop where we elevate the poor into the middle class. And constantly as new poor people come in, we elevate them to the middle class. Those people then generate taxes that help us cover the the poor who come after them. That seems to me the smarter thinking here, but Democrats have just given up on the idea that you could ever get out of being poor. And as a result, their entire structure for government programs is that we should keep the poor always comfortable and never feeling their need to improve their lot in life. And Governor Kemp is saying, you know what, we should incentivize people to improve their lot in life and get them off the the government dime if we can, because there will be other people who need it. That seems responsible. Seems outrageous Democrats would oppose this, but this is where we are in this country. Man, y'all want to watch heads explode? The president is coming to Atlanta on Friday to launch a new African-American coalition. It's going to have an event at the Georgia World Congress Center. Totally going to screw up traffic on a a Friday afternoon in Atlanta. Um, But uh, he's also going to be doing a big high-dollar fundraiser in Buckhead to support David Perdue. Uh, Now, why is he doing this? Well, uh, if you haven't heard... Turns out that uh, black Americans are employed at a higher rate now than at any time really in American history, I think, at least since World War II. Uh, So he's expected to highlight statistics that show low unemployment rates for black workers as well as an opportunity zone program tucked into the tax cut legislation that's designed to encourage investors to put money into struggling areas. He picked Atlanta for the rollout. Because of its role as an epicenter of black life in the region's fast-growing black population, according to a senior White House official, the vice president is set to address the crowd as well. Republicans face a daunting challenge wooing black voters in Georgia. 94% of black voters backed Abrams over Kemp in last year's race. The national data is grim, too. In 2016, only 8% of black voters cast their ballot for Trump. According to a 2018 Pew Research Center poll, only 8% of black voters identify as Republican. And a recent poll said only 4% of black voters think Donald Trump's actions and policies have benefited black people. But he's going to try. And I'm I'm not opposed to him doing it. Um. I, you know, listen, I, I, let me, how do I put this without getting myself in trouble? Um, yeah, that, that's me talking to myself, whispering out loud on the microphone to you guys. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say this. And I'm going to apologize in advance because some of you are about to be really offended with me. 
a lot of the black support that the president has can sometimes come across as a little nuts, slightly fringy. I don't mean that to be negative, but I'm just telling you. you. When you look at a lot of support the president has in minority communities, it is extremely zealous support. They clearly love the man. Uh, but it also comes from a lot of people who seem to be a little eccentric. And what I think Republicans have to do is they have to seem a little less eccentric. And honestly, a friend of mine has pointed this out before, that if you look at the the progressive Christian groups who support Democrats on the left, the, there will inevitably be people who come out and say they're Christian and they support Elizabeth Warren, and they'll be wackadoo fringy people on that side. And they'll be slightly eccentric in their support. And you see this with the president. And I, I look, I don't mean it to be disparaging. I don't mean it to be rude. I'm just trying to be honest with you guys. If you're going to support the president, try not to look like a nut job. And it doesn't matter what your race is. I I, I realize that the, the zealous supporters out there, they, they love him. They want to get his face tattooed on them. They want to do a wrap on their car that has the president's face all over it. I I get it, but I'm just telling you. To normal people, a lot of that sort of stuff can be off-putting. If the president really wants to make a go of building this coalition, surround himself with good people who aren't off-putting to other people uh, because they look like they're in a cult. Um, that's, That's my diplomatic way of dealing with this issue. I hope you understand what I mean. Let the listener understand. Y'all, I would like to thank Quip for sponsoring this week's show. Y'all, I love my Quip toothbrush. I bragged about it forever. I continue to brag about Quip because it is a great toothbrush. In fact, I took a trip this past weekend. My Quip went with me, obviously. It goes with me everywhere. And I really do get two minutes of brushing my teeth. Now, if you're not familiar with Quip, Quip is actually, it's the size of a regular toothbrush. It works on two AAA batteries. They send you the battery or one AAA battery. They send it with the Quip. And it just works. Your toothbrush gives you great sonic vibrations for two minutes. It pulses for every 30, every 30 seconds it pulses so that you know to switch it around in your mouth to, to get an even brushing. My dentist, my orthodontist, they both think I've been bleaching my teeth. I haven't. I've just been brushing really, really well because the quip vibrations are great to clean and the pulse makes sure that I know I, I've got two minutes to go. It turns itself off after two minutes and it makes sure that I'm getting an even cleaning by, by pulsing every 30 seconds as I switch it around. If you haven't quite tri- qu- bleh, haven't tried quip, let me slow down. If you haven't tried Quip, you should. You really actually should. Uh, It's a great toothbrush. I've tried the $100 supersonic toothbrushes. Nothing comes close to the Quip toothbrush. Nothing has incentivized me to get a two-minute brush into my teeth like Quip. You'll find that's the case with you, my wife, my kids. We've all got Quips. Quip starts at just $25. You can get your first refill free at getquip.com slash Erickson, E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N. It's a simple way to support the show. It's a simple way to get a better toothbrush. You go to getquip, G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash Erickson, and you'll get a refill free. Your brush head, every three months, they'll send you a new one. Your first one will be free. Go right now to getquip, G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash Erickson. Take advantage of this great deal. Thanks to Quip for sponsoring the show. Hello, 
and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia, around the nation, and the world on Facebook Live, among other things. Uh, the phone number here for a no wrong number. <laughs> One day, y'all are going to find my cell phone number. Uh, I'm just going to blurt it out on air. Not today. Today is not that day. 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, we, we got some problems out there for the Democrats. Uh, you got the polling, you got uh, Medicare for All not helping them, and you've got, well, let me just play you a couple segments from Meet the Press. Listen to this. But it was remarkable. We just played a clip of you from October of 73. Eight months later, what do we, that's, that's a full, that's nearly 10 months before Nixon resigns. We are at that same point, and we're expecting to have an impeachment inquiry and vote and trial and all that done in the next six, eight weeks. Well, like everything else, it's all more speeded up now than it was then. Instrumentation, the time, everything. Nixon held on to office after Bob Haldeman had gone to jail, after John Ehrlichman was going to jail, John Dean was going to These were his principal aides. They're all going to jail. And then start, stuff starts to leak out that closely ties Nixon to the whole cover-up. John Dean said at one point, he was in the office 35 times when we talked about this cover-up, and yet he was able to hang on. I think in part because the system took, it, it was a more deliberate process. Methodical. A more deliberate, methodical process. They've sped it up. Well, there's a problem with their speed. The public imagination is not caught up to it. Listen to this from Meet the Press. We went out and tried to find some voters, guys. To talk about impeachment, we had to bring it up to them. Here's what they told us. And I think it's a waste of time. There are a bunch of little kids fighting and not accomplishing what the hell they're elected for. And I think uh, we have a system to checks and balances, and the way it should work is that, uh, you know, the House and the Senate should do what is set out in the Constitution. I read the document, and it's there was absolutely nothing um, concerning to me. From one president to another, it was absolutely appropriate. Helene, these were in the early states. Uh, yeah, yeah, they are. <laughs> yes, yes, they are. They're having to go out and bring it up to the voters for the voters to care about it. It's not just them, though. Listen to this from CNN. Now, Wisconsin Democrats say they knocked on more than 50,000 doors just this weekend. That is double the number that Trump won the state of Wisconsin by in 2016. And here's some instant polling for you, Jake. I asked the party just now, did anyone bring up impeachment? And they said, no, it is not something that Democrats are bringing up organically. <laughs> In Wisconsin, they, they've knocked on more doors than Donald Trump, than votes that Donald Trump won in Wisconsin. And the Democrats are not even bringing, the Democratic voters, the ones they're doing this for, they're not even bringing up impeachment. When you've got Democrats admitting that they're not bringing up impeachment, it's really striking uh, the problems that they're having. It's not only that. Listen to this. This is um, Aaron Elmore talking on CNBC about this data point that's gone overlooked by Democrats. One thing for the president, you would say, and we saw it in the polling, I think the New York Times Siena College polling today, mm -hmm. is that he does poll much better in these key battleground states. He does. Than and, he does nationally. And you know what else is interesting? I was looking at who women are donating their money to. Yeah. Of all the male candidates, 46% for Trump. 40 for Biden, and in the 30s for um, Buttigieg. Donald Trump, 46% of the money women are giving to male candidates is going to Donald Trump. He's getting more money than Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders or Pete Buttigieg. Donald Trump is getting more money than from women. 
And the polls suggest that women don't like Donald Trump, and yet they're writing him checks, writing more checks than they are to the Democrats. It's actually pretty interesting. Actually, pretty interesting that we've got this money there. Uh, the, the way the money is, is, is being divvied up is going to the president. It's benefiting him. And, and this goes back to, I mentioned the battleground polls earlier. I mean, again, listen to this from CNN. Just give you a kind of reminder of the set the stage here. So remember, in the 2016 presidential campaign, what did we see? We saw nationwide Hillary Clinton beating Donald Trump 48 to 46. But in the six closest states that Trump won that helped determine the Electoral College, Arizona, Florida, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Trump won by a point. So let's take a look at these new battleground polls and compare them to what we're seeing nationally. And we see a trend line here that is consistent with what happened in 2016. So nationwide, if you take a look at the average poll for 2020 from October, we see Biden up by eight, Sanders up by six, Warren up by five. But take a look at these six closest states again that Trump won in 2016, according to new polls from the New York Times Siena College. If you average across the six, what do we see? We see Biden plus one. We see Sanders actually losing to Trump by one. And we see Warren trailing to Trump by three points. The president is leading Warren in those six battleground states by three points. Yes. So to sum up all of this together, the president is beating two of the three Democrats in these battleground states and Democratic voters in these battleground states, they don't care about impeachment. The, the reporters in Washington are having to bring it up. You know what people care about? They care about Elizabeth Warren's health care plan. They care about immigration. They, they care about our southern border. They care about our military. Rahm Emanuel, who helped get Obamacare passed, he's coming out forcefully against the Democrats. He's coming under attack from Democrats uh, for denouncing Medicaid for all. As He says it's not feasible. I still believe every argument about the uh, not about 2% on people earning above $50 million or some type of corruption issue. If this issue is not going to happen, and it's not the way you actually argue health care. Having done the ACA for Obama, kids' health care for President Clinton, the reimportation of pharmaceutical products in the House when we beat Tom DeLay, the politics of this is she is making this more difficult than it needs to be on the very issue of cost control. It is a pipe dream. You are not, we couldn't get, when we had 58, we're Democratic senators. We couldn't get a public option. What makes you think, and I say this in the piece, give me the nine Republicans that are going to vote for Medicare for all, and I will declare New York pizza better than Chicago pizza. <laughs> it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And yet she continues to push this, and she's sabotaging herself in so doing. But she believes. She believes it. Well, there's another issue happening, uh, and I, I, I need to make sure that we understand what what on earth i have no idea uh what's happening there um okay i need to discuss i and i'm sorry i'm i'm seeing texts from my team who that they're they're that they're upset with my past monologue <laughs> <laughs> I tried to phrase this. You, I think you all know what I mean about supporters who step outside uh, the, the the their group who support the other side. They they tend to be the the unique trendsetters. We'll we'll put it to you that way. Um, we we need to talk about this issue. This is actually 
a significant issue. It happened overnight. If you're turning on the news this morning and you haven't heard about it, I assure you you're going to be hearing about it. This is from the New York Times. Uh, they put it up this morning. At least nine members of a Mormon family in Mexico are killed in ambush. Six children were among the victims in a massacre attributed to organized crime, relatives say. Other children were rescued, some of whom hid along a roadside. At least three women and six children in a prominent local Mormon family were killed on Monday when their vehicles were ambushed in northern Mexico by gunmen believed to be members of organized crime, family members said. The attack alarmed a nation already reeling from record violence of the year. Members of the Laveran family, dual Mexican-American citizens who have been living in a fundamentalist Mormon community at the border region for decades, were attacked in three separate vehicles when the gunman attacked, several family members said. They described a terrifying scene in which one child was gunned down while running away while others were trapped inside a burning car. Two of the children killed were less than a year old, the family member said. Kenny LeBaron, a cousin of the women driving the vehicle, said in a telephone interviews he feared the death toll could grow, grow higher. When you know there are babies tied in a car seat that are burning because of some twisted evil that's in the world, it's just hard to cope with that. Mexico has suffered a string of violent episodes in the last month, each as devastating and infuriating for citizens as the last. President Obrador said during a morning news conference on Monday, the region where the attack took place has been a very violent area for many years. Let me put this in perspective for you. The area where this violent attack happened, killing women and children, happened just on the other side of the American border. These are American citizens who were killed. This is not good for Mexico, and it almost forces some level of American response. In fact, President Trump on Tuesday offered to help Mexico eradicate the cartels. Uh, the president, he, the, these are his tweets. This is the time for Mexico with the help from the United States to wage war on the drug cartels and wipe them off the face of the earth. We merely await a call from your great new president. The cartels have become so large and powerful, you sometimes need an army to defeat an army. It doesn't get a lot of coverage from the American press, in large part because I, I and you know, I, I this is me speculating. It, it, it's me speculating. I think the media doesn't cover the collapse of the Mexican state because they're so sensitive to accusations of racism. And in the age of Donald Trump, they don't want to they don't want to uh, add fuel to the fire of the president's uh, restrictionist immigration policies. And so they're not giving people really the full picture of what's going on in Mexico. The reality is the Mexican state is collapsing. It is failing. There are Mexican communities that have been wholly cut off from the outside world, so to speak, uh, not, not physically cut off, but just in terms of governmental structure and communications. They're having to take matters into their own hands, establishing their own local armies and law enforcement. Uh, they, they're not sending taxes to the Mexican government because the Mexican government isn't helping them. They're using that money in their local communities. The Mexican drug cartels are, are being helped by an open border. And this, again, goes to why I think so much of what the media covers is slanted is because the media can't believe that the open border between Mexico and the United States is having an impact. But in fact, the Mexican drug cartel's ability to spill drugs over into this country easily over the border 
is one of the major issues that uh, Mexico is having. It is propping up the drug cartels. You close the border, you have a financial impact on the Mexican drug cartels. It's one reason the president wants to do it. You know what actually, interestingly enough, uh, caused some problems for the Mexican drug cartel? Legalization of recreational marijuana in this country has hurt the Mexican drug cartels. Uh, they were growing so much marijuana in Mexico to smuggle across into the American um, bo- across the American border when. California, Colorado, Washington State, Alaska, and others legalized the growing of marijuana for the sale of marijuana. It suddenly cut into their profit margin because domestic American marijuana was hurting the drug cartels. So the drug cartels have responded by focusing on other drugs, harder substances, heroin, uh, cocaine, crack, uh, amphetamines, methamphetamines, uh, illegal prescriptions, Things like that that they're pushing across the border to to try to make up for the loss of sales of marijuana in the United States, and they're they're pushing out a bunch of cocaine into the United States. Rich white people drug. Mexico is in a civil war. They don't want to call it that. They don't want to admit that their state is collapsing, but there are areas of Mexico the government is unable to function in. And some of those areas are increasingly along the American border. In the 1800s, we had to send American generals into Mexico with the American army and tanks to subdue outlaw Mexican gangs that were harassing American citizens in Mexico. There is precedent for an American incursion into Mexico. We just had an American family massacred in Mexico. Now, will it matter that they're also Mexican citizens? Maybe. But this is another reminder of the violence on the border, right on the border. American citizens, nine of them, women and children, gunned down, children shot in the back as they tried to run away. Women murdered, burned alive in their cars. This demands an American response. And as long as our border is unsecure, as long as the Mexican drug cartels can get into this country so easily, the situation's not going to change. The president has good arguments for border security, and this in and of itself could become a campaign issue. What did I tell you the other day? I did an entire monologue on this. Events matter. Events matter more than demography. Everyone on the left thinks demography is destiny. No events are destiny. You've got American citizens being gunned down along the border in Mexico. You've got the uh, the Mexican drug cartels increasing hostilities towards the United States and in Mexico. These sorts of things matter when it comes to a presidential campaign, particularly when the Democrats are so focused on health care and, and other issues outside of our hemisphere. And this is our own backyard. It matters. And the president has an opportunity to do something about it. He's probably not going to miss that opportunity. So the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and the ACLU in Georgia are at odds over the voter registration purge. The ACLU says it identified 70 people it claimed voted in November 18, uh, but are targeted for cancellation. And so there's proof they found 70 people on the list of the 313,243 people who are to be Purge from the voter rolls. Therefore, they say the voter roll is canceling legitimate people. There's a problem, though. There's a problem. Uh, The Secretary of State's office did not list those 70 people on the list to be purged. Essentially, what the ACLU did is they, they ran numbers 
and they found 70 people who were likely to be on the purge list, and they're not actually on the purge list. And the ACLU is using those 70 people likely to be on the purge list as proof the purge list is flawed, and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is calling the ACLU out. Let me read you this paragraph. The ACLU based its findings on voting records from a month after the 2018 election, but a more recent state voting list obtained last month by the AJC shows that no voters who have cast ballots since September 2016 will be canceled. Now, here's the, the interesting thing. Of the 313,000 people, the A, the AJC has now confirmed 62%, 62% of them have moved either to different states or to different counties. In other words, to the AJC, there are only 120,561 registrations set for cancellation uh, that are matched to voters who haven't cast a ballot since the spring of 2012 or before uh, who appear not to have moved. So we're talking 120,561 people whose ballots could be canceled, whose voter registration will be canceled, and they haven't voted since at least the primaries of 2012. Election officials believe most of them have still moved out of state. People have the opportunity to go find them. But again, the AJC is pointing out that in all the ACLU's hysteria over the numbers, many of the 70 people identified by the ACLU as questionable cancellations, and these are people who who may not be canceled, they appear to have moved away. They filed change of address forms. Their mail was undeliverable or their property records show their homes have been sold. Some of those who haven't participated in recent elections told WSB-TV in Atlanta that they have no intention of voting and don't care that they're being removed from the state's voter rolls. What? How can this be? We're told that the right to vote is sacrosanct and everyone should do it and everyone does want to do it. And yet here come people saying, wait a second, we don't want to vote anyway. This is, this is a manufactured outrage by Democrats, and the ACLU is complacent. Remember, the ACLU made a, a really big stink about the polling places. Oh, what was the county in South Georgia? I can't remember the county name now. County in South Georgia. Was it White County? It might have been White County. Um, controlled by uh, majority black Democrats. The Board of Elections run by Democrats, and they were closing polling precincts. And And the ACLU never bothered to point out that the polling precincts that were being closed were the ones that the Republicans kept winning. The ones that the Democrats won were the polling places that were going to be kept open. They were closing precincts that didn't comply with the Americans with Disabilities Act because the county's too poor to make the upgrades to comply. So what they were going to do is they were going to consolidate the counties, and the ACLU made a big stink about it. They and the Abrams campaign, they claimed that this was all part of Brian Kemp trying to suppress the vote, which is what they're trying to do now. But the AJC's actually gone through, and they've run the numbers, they've done the data, and it turns out that of the names that the ACLU came up with as people who were going to be unfortunately canceled, they weren't even on the list. But they had all moved out of state. The state of Georgia is not going to cancel someone's voter registration unless they haven't voted in seven years or they have moved out of state. If they've moved out of state, they're voting in those states. There's no reason to keep them on the rolls. And the AJC looked at the numbers of this 313,000 people. A hundred, uh, 190 some odd thousand of them have moved out of state. Or they've moved to a different county and they're registered now in that county. 
We're only talking 120,000 people who we can't find. The AJC went out and found some of them, and guess what? They had the audacity to say they're not going to vote anyway, so they don't care. You're not supposed to say stuff like that. I need to apologize to my audience. Uh, I set the recipe, the sweet potato pie recipe, to go out on Friday, and then I headed off on a guy's weekend, and it apparently did not go out, and I only just now realized it, so I will send out the sweet potato pie recipe uh, as quick as I can. I was actually going to... So, um, if you're just tuning in, welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, and you can call in 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I... have had a series of vacations this year and I have wound up working on every single one of those vacations. And I have not actually had a vacation where I completely unplugged in, I don't know. Um, I don't know that I've had a vacation where I've completely unplugged. And this weekend, some buddies of mine decided they were taking me to Vegas. Um, They, they took care of everything. Uh, all I had to do was show up, and I showed up, and my electronics were confiscated. I uh, was not allowed to work. Uh, I, I occasionally could sne- I sneaked in a little bit, but by and large, I was not allowed to work. And I wasn't allowed to watch the news. I uh, wasn't allowed to go places where the news was on. I, I was completely prohibited, and it was glorious. I, I really now realize I've done it now. I've, I've done it. I survived. The world did not end. I, I can actually, I can do this. I, I can go away. Uh, I can spend time with friends and family and not have to work, and it was great. Uh, but I've been playing catch-up on the plane ride home yesterday, trying to play catch-up uh, as the worries and, and, and work stresses began to, to sneak back in, being more and more mindful of how important it is to actually have friends you can relate to and have conversations with and enjoy each other's company and not make it all about work. I was actually telling a buddy of mine this weekend that uh, Charlie, my producer, and I, I I got to catch myself because I, I find myself obsessing and wanting to talk about work with Charlie all the time. And uh, he's a friend, and I, I, I feel like I'm burdening him by wanting to talk about work all the time. Of course, he does too, but at the same time, you know what I mean. Um we, it it's just it's hard sometimes to check out of work, uh, particularly if, like me, you love your job. It is what you think about. It consumes a great portion of your time. Uh, but I have been finding more and more in the last year that I am putting work ahead of even family, and, and I'm bad at practicing what I preach in that regard because I'm constantly thinking about work, the growth of the show, uh, what affiliates do we need to target? What advertisers do we need to target? Are we going to get advertisers? How's the revenue stream? Uh, I, I don't have a, a great business sense myself. And it is, uh, I, I've realized I've got to surround myself with people who have a better business sense than I do because uh, I can show up and talk. And I, I, I know, and the ratings prove it, that I can sit down and I can have a conversation with you guys behind the microphone. And it is in some way entertaining and meaningful enough to people that they want to tune in every day and listen to it. And and I appreciate you guys very much for doing that, particularly for a show this new. And a lot of stations are, are no longer getting the calls, wanting to know why the voice that I replaced is no longer there. Uh, they've got me and they're getting used to it. And I appreciate it. And, and, and I value it. I really do. But that's what I want to do. I want to be on camera. I want to be on the microphone. I want to talk. I want to want to keep people company. I want to make sure they know they're not alone. It's one of the, the whole purposes of what I do in radio. And listen, a, a lot of people think you can just show up on radio and read the headlines or whatnot, and, and that's it. But no, you, you've got to at least make it compelling. you got to make people learn something. Um, you got to be a place where smart people can go get even smarter. 
you got to be a place where people can be entertained. Do you keep them company on the ride home or on the ride to work or, or when they're in their office and they're bored and they don't want to talk to their coworkers? They turn me on and who's that voice in your office? So I appreciate it. It's it's doing radio was something I never expected to do. I fell into it completely by accident. But along the way, I have realized uh, that it, it my strong suit is I can sit down and I can talk until I'm blue in the face about a topic and try to make it as engaging as I possibly can. Uh, but I do not have the the business depth or sense. It's not my background. Uh, yes, I was a, a corporate lawyer. I could incorporate businesses. Uh, I can do it with my eyes closed still, and I can help get people in the right direction. Um, but I need other people to help me get in the right direction. Uh, that's one reason um, I, I like my buddy Chris Burns over at Dynamic Money, which, by the way, I should say this hour is sponsored by Dynamic Money. Uh, if you want to get uh, yourself in sound financial footing, go talk to Chris Burns at Dynamic Money. The, basically, think of him as a, a general physician for your finances, where he's not going to make a commission off of you selling you products, but he's going to go get with your life insurance guy, your lawyer, your estate guy, uh, your stocks and bonds guy, your your retirement planner. He's going to get them all together, make sure they're all on the same page, so that he's got a, a plan for you for life to get you in financial shape, and he's going to work with each of those people. If you want him to manage your money, in full disclosure, my wife and I let Chris manage our money. Um, he'll do it, but he doesn't have to. You can keep it with Fidelity, Merrill Lynch, wherever, Vanguard, and he'll just get your right strategy growing and moving forward. So go to dynamicmoney.com if you need help. He's like Dave Ramsey, but he'll let you use credit card. <laughs> um, but it, so, so Chris is one of the, and, and Charlie and Philip, just having people that I can talk to about business, you, you got to have people who are experts in areas you're not. I'm on an email list right now where this Mexican story that I was talking about is circulating, and there actually is some very interesting data about the family in Mexico that uh, they, they're nut farmers in northern Mexico, and they've lived in the area for a very long time. Uh, they had some very big business deals there, and there are others who are trying to cut into their business deals. Um, it just, it's, it's, there's a rivalry taking shape south of the border. There's gang violence south of the border. And it seems that the American media has a hard time figuring out how they're going to deal with it because they don't want to play into Donald Trump's hands because they're so against the president's immigration's plans it's difficult to get the truth out of what's happening in Mexico because I think if people understood what was happening in Mexico, they would be more concerned and more willing to agree with the president that the border needs to be secured. And so the media is essentially trying to downplay stories in Mexico of violence in order to avoid the president's immigration plans getting traction, and that's something we should all be concerned about. Now, I, I need to circle back to the issue of Aaron Calvin and cancel culture. Aaron Calvin is the reporter who worked for the Des Moines Register. And Aaron Calvin did a profile of who he calls local celebrity Carson King. And it cost him his job. Carson King is the 20-something who stood up on ESPN and held up a sign saying, send me beer money, and had his Venmo number uh, where people could send him a text and he could get beer money. 
and he got over a million dollars from people by holding up that sign, and he decided to partner with the local children's hospital. And in partnering with the local children's hospital, uh, he would give them money. Anheuser-Busch partnered with him. They were going to make even more money. They were going to put his name on cans. And then Aaron Calvin showed up. Let me read you a little bit of Aaron Calvin, who wrote the profile of Carson King. When King announced that his fundraiser had crossed the million-dollar mark, I decided to write a longer profile of him. I drove out to his home in a suburb of Des Moines. I had been talking with King via Facebook Messenger, but this was my first time meeting him in person. He was humble and struck me as a genuinely kind and well-meaning person. As I began writing, an editor requested that I run a background check on King. This is standard practice at the register, as it is for many newspapers, when reporting on public figures. I looked at King's court records as well as his public social media, and I found a few racist jokes he tweeted in high school. In context, I could see that these had been references to sketches by the comedian Daniel Tosh. I told my editor about the tweets and was asked to reach out to King for comment. I believe this was the right thing to do. Performing background checks on public figures is part of a journalist's responsibility. If I had found the tweets, others would too. I approached King with an understanding that what you tweet in high school is not necessarily representative of your beliefs as an adult, and he duly apologized. I included a brief mention of the offensive tweets in King's apology toward the end of my profile. It was a small moment placed in context at the end of a positive story. The tweets were part of a narrative of growth both maturity and compassion, not an accusation. Gotcha moment. When I asked King about his tweets, I tried to communicate. I wasn't trying to bring him down. It was clear to me now, though, that he was worried about personal blowback. As is common in the world of celebrity PR, he moved to get ahead of the details that would be revealed in the profile. He held a press conference, and he apologized publicly. In a statement given to the local television statements, he noted a registered reporter had brought the tweets to his attention. I was not provided the statement. I don't believe King set out to implicate me, but because he preempted my forthcoming profile, people believed I had intended to impugn his character. You know what? I can stop reading this garbage. This guy wound up losing his job by by sabotaging King. I want to, again, read you a couple of key phrases in here. The standard practice at the Des Moines Register, as it is for many newspapers, when reporting on public figures, performing background checks on public figures is a part of a journalist's responsibility. But this guy, Carson King, is not a public figure. He's a guy who held up a sign on TV asking for beer money, and the media made him famous. And this time and time again is what the media does. It it builds people up, it makes them famous, and then it seeks to destroy them. And this guy can't seem to understand that he played a role in it. He doesn't think it's his fault. But not only that, he doesn't want to still acknowledge that cancel culture exists. In fact, he says he was fired. He wasn't canceled, he was fired. But that's the whole point of it. I, maybe he takes it too literally, the word canceled, that, well, I'm not canceled, I'm still here. No, no, kid, you're canceled. The media has fired you, and good luck getting a job. He's having to go uh, as an act of penance to the Columbia Journalism Review and write from his side how he did nothing wrong, and and, and he's, he's 
Uh, he's a, a he's a fallout from people going after him, but he wasn't canceled, but he was. Maybe it's cognitive dissonance. I don't know. Uh, but this guy blew up another person, and he got caught in the fallout of his own story. What's so interesting is that, one, he can't recognize that the person he covered wasn't a public figure. This guy's job, Aaron Calvin at the Des Moines Register, he's the guy who got Calvin, uh, who, who sabotaged Carson King, the kid who got a million dollars in beer money by holding up a sign on ESPN and donated it to a hospital. And Aaron Calvin, one, cannot accept that Carson King is not a famous person. He can't accept he's not a public person, a public personality. Because his face was on TV, he must be a public persona, and therefore... He's fair game to be covered, including all the stuff he did in high school. He's fair game, except he's not. He's not a public person, and this guy doesn't doesn't understand it. Not only that, he doesn't understand that, yes, the mob did come for him. He can't accept the mob came for him either. And the reason he can't is because he was on social media before all of this happened, and he was mocking the idea of cancel culture, that cancel culture doesn't exist, that the whole idea uh, behind cancel culture isn't real, and yet time and time again we see that it is real, where the left-wing mob tries to get someone taken down, taken out, removed from a job, removed from the town square where they can speak truth to power. They're, they're not allowed to anymore. They get thrown off social media. They get thrown off uh, TV. They get thrown off radio. Uh, they're silenced. The silencing of the person is canceling them. But what's more, he laments that there was no union at the Des Moines Register. Had I been a union member, I believe I would have been more effectively, had a more effective advocate for myself. The day I was fired, the Department of Justice approved a massive merger between Gannett and Gatehouse, forming the largest media corporation in the nation. The Gannett-Gatehouse merger will result in a historic monopoly over local news media and will promptly uh, will prompt widespread layoffs. This is a progressive kid, Aaron Calvin. He rejects cancel culture. He thinks people who are punished by the social media mob deserve it. He doesn't think he deserves it, so he doesn't think he was canceled, even though he was. And he thinks unionism would be great. Progressivism leaks into this because it is the logic of an insane asylum. Progressivism does not make sense. We're, we're still in the early days of shaking out the doctrines of wokeness, and this is part of it. Unions are good. Unions would protect him. Cancel culture isn't real, but he got canceled, but he wasn't really canceled. And what did he do? He turned the social media mob against a guy who just wanted beer money. And when he got so much, he donated it to a local hospital for the children. A guy was literally raising money for a children's hospital. And Aaron Calvin turned the sights of a newspaper on this private citizen and now justifies this. Well, he wasn't really a private citizen. He got on TV. Therefore, he must be a public persona. So I guess that, I mean, by Aaron Calvin's logic, anyone who appears on the nightly news has the right to a media rectal exam because, hey, they're a public figure now. They've been on TV. That isn't a standard anyone should uphold. And the fact that this kid justifies his work in that way suggests we're still going to have a long way for the media to go before it begins to recover its own credibility because the media has lost its credibility over stuff like this, over reporters like this. 
the media has real biases. The media has real problems. And it affects their coverage of Mexico. It affects their coverage of the president. It affects their coverage of private citizens who just happen to get a little bit of spotlight. They go after the sports star in college who did something dumb on Twitter when they were 15 years old to try to ruin their career. In the name of, well, they're famous now. This is what we do to famous people. The media continues to affirm the idea that it loves to build people up only to tear them down. And now it's beginning to tear the media down. And honestly, I'm kind of glad. I I was kind of shocked to see this story in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, It's a good one, though, Uh, relevant to those of us here in Georgia. Uh, It came out over the weekend. The headline, if you can manage a Waffle House, you can manage anything. Running a 24-hour budget diner isn't glamorous, but it forces leaders to serve others with speed, stamina, and zero entitlement. This is a piece by Sam Walker in the uh, Wall Street Journal. He's a former reporter and editor of the Wall Street Journal and a author of a new book, The Captain Class, a new theory in leadership. And he basically studied Waffle House. And his kicking off point was of a young lady from Georgia who headed to college, decided to get a job at Walmart. Um, Let me read you some of this. It's very, very interesting here. Uh, What does it take to be a successful Waffle House manager? Speed, for one thing, to meet the goal of serving every customer in eight minutes or less, the wait staff doesn't bother punching orders into a computer. They write them down in shorthand code. They read them aloud to cooks. The cooks remember them by arranging condiments on empty platters. I always wondered about that. A face-up mustard packet signifies a pork chop, for example. If the restaurant is busy or short-staffed, managers dive in. The company's training program teaches them how to analyze profit and loss statements, but also prepares them to cook clean and wait tables. Now, that may sound like stopwatch overkill, but the company's president, Walt uh, Emmer, spoke on a recent podcast, said doing grunt work is good for business. It helps managers earn the trust and respect of their teams while staying connected to the entire operation. You learn a lot about what's working and what's not. Once they tackle the pace, the next challenge is endurance. Simply put, Waffle House never closes. If there's a crisis in the middle of the night, the manager gets a call. And that's a supreme testament to their stamina. It's called the Waffle House Index that FEMA uses to assess how bad a storm was. To encourage retention, it offers managers bonuses for keeping turnover low. To discourage them from overworking people, it expects stores with high sales figures to have higher staffing costs, too. Now, think about this. Pause, pause, pause. Walmart tries to keep its employee costs low. So minimal employee hours, lots of part-time people, uh, generate big sales with lots of part-time people. And um, Walmart does it, or Waffle House does it exactly the opposite. If your store has high sales figures, you better have high staffing costs meaning you better be paying people a good salary to keep them and in keeping them to bring others in to also work part-time in your Waffle House location. The more sales you do, the more they expect you to pay people. That that sounds capitalism 101, 
But in the 21st century, where people want to offload to computers and whatnot, it's not very intuitive these days. And yet that's what Waffle House does. Another interesting thing is that Waffle House discourages managers from dumping work on other people or taking more credit than they deserve or pretending to be nicer than they are. It doesn't work there. Successful Waffle House managers have to cultivate regulars. Doing that means relating to people from all walks of life. So they don't like to hire anyone who doesn't smile readily or make easy conversation. It's incredible. Um, it, it, it essentially the whole premise of this book is if you spend your if you spend a several years working at Waffle House, going through their management program, you can then leave Waffle House and work in any company on the planet, and any company on the planet would be crazy not to hire you. But there's a catch: the longer you work at Waffle House the less likely you are to want to leave the Waffle House because you like it. That kind of explains everything. It's an unpretentious place where people who work hard can't actually get ahead. It is a perfect model of American capitalism when American capitalism still has some sort of level of grounding and morality too. Uh, more of this. This was this was great to read. I highly encourage you to do it. I'll, I'll tweet it out right now. E.W. Erickson on Twitter. You'll be able to find it. 